Welcome into the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by Mile High Green Cross. Sign up for their loyalty program and receive 20% off your entire purchase once per month. I am your host, Drew Creaseman. I am the managing editor of DNVR Rockies. And with me is our beat writer, Patrick Lyons, as we continue our conversation of PBS documentary by Ken Burns Baseball. Uh, we are now into inning five, the fifth episode, in case there was any confusion uh, about that, uh, covering uh, mostly uh, this was, I guess you could very loosely call this the one about the Negro Leagues. If it had a, a friend's title, you know how they're all the one about, uh, <laughs> that's what that's what its friend's title would be. Um Patrick, <laughs> are you going to roast me right away for the fact that this is also the Satchel Page episode, and and there's obviously somebody missing from the podcast? Yeah, I, Drew and I were, were chatting during this. I was like, you if you're if you don't get your mom on this episode, I the, the fans are going to be pissed. I have to use uh, such blue language, but right. we're, we're we're missing Barbara Creaseman at Barbara Creaseman. 256L Grand Junction Rockies 2019. I think that's might be her handle. Give or take a couple extra digits and letters. But we miss you out there, Barbara. And uh, we'll we'll get your take on this one because this is this is your wheelhouse for sure. And and you're right. The one about the Negro Leagues that that's a good way to describe it. And, and the the inning itself was called called Shadow Ball, um, which you know alludes to the game that was. You know, played by the most predominantly by the Indianapolis Clowns of the Negro Leagues, where you know they would uh, put on a show or performance where they wouldn't use a baseball at all because they would move so quickly back and forth that it would seem as if, well, there, there's no way they're not throwing a baseball. I'm hearing the ball make the hit in the mitt, so they're they're doing it, and uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a fantastic game, and and like I said, it's a it's a great allusion to what a lot has been interspersed in this inning. And that is, as you said, the Negro leagues. I think another potential title for this episode uh, was one of the quotes. And I, I didn't manage to write down the writer. Maybe you got it. Um, one of the people I, I'm, I'm honestly not even sure it might've been John Thorne, but I don't think so. I think it was the other guy um, who talked about how this becomes a, an endless series of what ifs. I, I think mm. that could have been, the title of the episode, not just even for obviously it most heavily applies to players like Josh Gibson, Satchel Page. We'll get into all that. These guys who were left out. But I think you could even apply that endless series of what ifs to Lou Gehrig, certainly to mm. Babe Ruth and the way their career. So I don't know. Not that I would dare dare suggest that I could come up with a better title for an episode of a documentary than Ken Burns perhaps my favorite documentarian. Uh, but I like an endless series of what ifs. I thought that was a really beautiful phrase. And I, I think it captures like the issue because it's a, it's a two way street. It's often framed. And I think rightfully so, you know, that Buck O'Neill and Josh Gibson and Satchel page, these could have been the greatest players of all time, maybe. And we don't know because they weren't, allowed to play in what was considered to be, you know, the highest league in the land, but maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe the Negro leagues actually had 
the most elite level of baseball at the time. We don't really have a way of of knowing that either. So, you know, it it is an endless series. And and then it, it brings into the kind of mirror question all of the accomplishments of players like uh, Ty Cobb and, and Christy Mathewson and Walter Johnson and all of these players and, and everything that they did, they managed to do while a certain level of elite talent was excluded from the game. So it really is just this unfortunate storm cloud over the history of our game. Yeah. It's a, it's a shadow of, of course to the, to the game and, you know, I'm sure there shadow ball was a good title. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Well, I'm sure there's some people out there going like, well, you know, the greatest athletes of the game are not playing baseball right now. Well, we're not talking about athletes because yes, you know, there's, there will never be a true hunger games. Thank God. Well, I mean, I don't, well, we'll see what happens next week when we start recording, uh, (laughs) depending on the news, but (laughs) I guess in theory, there will never be a Hunger Games. No, there there shouldn't be. Um, and there that's shouldn't o- be. We, yeah. can, we can agree on that. <laughs> and that's okay. That's fine. But there was like actively another major league of baseball players. And sure, they might not have been from all over the world. They were all over that region and in North America and and the Caribbean. And but they were playing the exact same game. So there's much less of a of a what if than talking about just the greatest athletes. They were actually playing the great. Um, the greats against one another in these barnstorming games, and you tweeted out. I think you had the exact number. Do you? I don't know if you remember what it was, but it was it was I'll pretty. It. it was it was unbelievable. Actually, I think that, I've got it in my head. It was three oh nine and one twenty nine black player wow. black teams over white teams, and what I guess you could call interleague play. Sure. Yeah, it's like a seven hundred winning percentage when you're talking about the best you know, of, of the barnstormers of, of the white players that were going out and playing in those games. So that's, that's, you know, that's quite the gaudy record to have played against those white teams. So, you know, as you said, the, what if, you know, obviously Lou Gehrig was in the shadow of his career there in, in 1939, getting diagnosed with what later became known as fittingly Lou Gehrig's disease and that video and, and maybe I'm I'm getting too far ahead but I never really watched the video of the you know today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth I never like watched the speech and there was only you know maybe 10 seconds before uh, he uttered those famous words but you could see him crying and he was handed a a trophy by his manager Joe McCarthy and he could he could barely put it down like he you know he kind of squatted down almost like you're supposed to lift something heavy, you know, don't, don't lift it with your back, you know, use your legs. He, he actually did that with a relatively small trophy. And it was, I just had never noticed that detail before. And it was, it was one of the, the two moments in this inning that actually made me cry a little bit and, and just made me just so very sad for the human race. Yeah, it, it's, I think there's a reason why it's, sort of been etched into the the zeitgeist right our our social consciousness and it's it's a very striking moment it's still a very striking moment and i'm with you i I got very emotional watching it listening to the stories about him uh you know not even being able to hit the ball in bp that i thought was particularly heartbreaking um because 
and and it's not to minimize anyone else who's obviously struggled with this horrific condition or or anyone who who struggles with anything who's not an athlete it's not like there's a um that makes it lesser there's something though of in a storyteller's mind and in a cosmic irony about a man particularly who was known for playing every single game of course that this is why the story has always been compelling i'm not adding anything new probably to the narrative here i'm not saying anything that hasn't been said but that he was the symbol for health good health mm. um peak elite in the world athlete um and that he was brought down so quickly by this thing. Not that anyone maybe right now as we're recording this needs a reminder of how mm. fragile humanity can be, regardless of how strong we think we are. But that was, I, I think, uh, an early national reminder of that and something worth remembering and and. <laughs> yeah, went to school to Columbia, so he was, you know, was a very well educated man, and you know, essentially born and raised in in New York City, you know, and then within those five boroughs. So, uh, so so sad, and you know, the nickname was very well earned, the Iron Horse. And you know, if you if you hear in a, a broadcast talking about a, a player getting pipped, that is in reference to Wally Pip, who was the man who decided, hey, let, let's let this 19-year-old kid, you know, get into a game. And that kid was Lou Gehrig, and then he did not get off that first base bag for a good 14 more seasons. So make make sure you're you're thankful for the job you got and, and do everything you can because there's always going to be somebody else that's coming up from behind that uh, may be looking to, to take your job. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, the even the fact that there's this kind of symmetry to the story of he and Babe Ruth and that um, the Yankees do have this weird sort of passing of the torch each generation yeah. down to these phenomenal players. We also get to meet Joe DiMaggio, then becomes the next one. It's like, how, how did they time this up uh, <laughs> with these guys? Uh, but But that famous shot, of and you know i think i had seen the shot before and i don't know if, if if i had remembered that there was a falling out between lou gehrig and babe ruth but certainly being told this time i was like oh i yeah if i knew that i'd forgotten i guess is the phrase i'm looking for there and so when you see them and they're sort of hugging and posing for the cameras you're like man these guys have been through some stuff and now we've got, you know, four hours of documentary. And that's one of the reasons why I love Ken Burns did it the way he did, because these stories spill over into each other, um, you know, and, and we can reach back into some of the things from the earlier innings. Like when they established the Hall of Fame, we know who all these people are. You've covered them extensively. Thank you. Yeah, Lou and Babe, you know, they, they spent a lot of off season together, too, because that was as you know, we're going to talk about with the Negro leagues with, with the barnstorming and, and, you know, playing all these exhibition games around, you know, the world, which we also saw in this inning uh, with Babe Ruth going over to Japan is that they made a lot of money. It was, it was the Larrapin lose versus the Bustin babes. And they would, you know, have these game of traveling all-stars and that's how these guys 
would really start to make some good money in the off season if they were selected to play on these teams. So yeah, Lou and Babe, man, they had more of each other than they probably would have liked. But the real reason why that their kind of uh, relationship really splintered was when one of the gentleman's wives and uh, Babe's Babe's wife and, and Lou Gehrig's mom didn't get along. And when you get a wife and you get a mother involved, now now it's now you got to go your separate ways. Now it's that's serious business, you know. That's that, that's definitely that's, serious. That's absolutely right. That that is one hundred percent true. Um, another character who we didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with, but there were two phenomenal quotes about, at least I think if I, unless I got my quotes mixed up, but we got a little bit of time with lefty Grove. Hmm. Um, not much, but I had remembered this quote. I could not remember which pitcher it applied to. And it was just attributed to a writer. So thanks. Okay. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> he could throw a lamb chop past a wolf. Yeah. That's good. That's that was good. that was Lefty Grove. I I read ha- at least half of a book on him. He you know he was he was quirky. The and, left half, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. And uh, and yeah, he he was just so ridiculously dominant, uh, and was just super competitive. Not not terribly interesting. Um, you know, did win an MVP, which is um, hard to do as as a as a starting pitcher, but. You know, was phenomenal. Got one finished with exactly three hundred wins, which was was hard to do right around that time. Um, especially because you know, in, in I think it's nineteen forty two, you you've got the start of uh, World War Two, and so a lot of you know pitchers' careers were just kind of stunted because of that. So Grove was kind of the last uh, amongst the group for a, a fantastic Philadelphia A's team that had some great players on it with great nicknames. Besides, besides Connie Mack, we we discussed his real name being Cornelius McGillicuddy. I also love Al Simmons, mm. who was on his team, whose real name was Aloysius Zamansky. So good. Yes, Aloysius so good. is the one name nobody can spell, which is why I love it. And Mickey Cochran, known as Black Mike, who inspired a father from Commerce City, Oklahoma, that when he had a, a boy, he decided he would name his son after his favorite ball player, and he became Mickey Mantle. And and finally, Jimmy Fox from that uh, colossal 1929 Philadelphia A's team. He had two great nicknames, Double X, which is amazing, and then he was also known as The Beast. That's the one I always forget, that he was called The Beast because yeah. he looked like a beast. And uh, sure. fun fact, Jimmy Fox was actually – the player on whose Tom Hanks character was based upon in a league of their own. So he, at the end of his career, when it was over, he had to coach in the all American girls professional baseball league. So that was, um, Jimmy Dugan was actually Jimmy Fox. That's pretty fantastic. You're, you reminded me there was something about Mickey Cochran. I wanted to write down, but I missed it because I started writing down a quote shortly after what they told a story about Mickey Cochran. Oh, I don't know. He he had a you know he had a fiery temper, but I mean, who didn't? That's how he got his nickname. Um, yeah, you know, Black Mike. But um, no, he just he he could hit uh, as far as catchers go. He wasn't just like a well-respected guy. Won two MVP awards. Um, you know, right at the at the dawn of of them starting to to give those out, and you know was uh, he he was a star with the Philadelphia A's, and then later with um, the Detroit Tigers. I always thought he was more of a Tigers guy, but. Uh, it's not true. He actually spent more of his career with the with the Philadelphia A's. 
Fair enough. All right, you can set me right on this uh, because I just have this quote hanging there after the Lefty Grove thing. But I think this was something he said. Was he the one who said, what kind of pitch would you like to miss? Ah, uh, I think that was him. I mean, you said he was, but I mean, that's where I've got it. So I'm, I'm attributing it to him. It could have been that or Satchel Page. There's a lot of good Satchel Page stuff, too. Yeah, but I think I would have written it because I because I got a bunch of those in, in that section. I'm, <laughs> I'm more familiar with his, so I, I think that was was Lefty Grove. But uh, yeah, so so pretty good stuff from that group. Um, before we get into uh, the Negro League guys, I thought there was one other player. Where did it go? Did... Hmm. There was. Well, a... Let's let's. Go ahead. I was going to say there's a short passage talking about John McGraw retiring, then passing away two years later, and his wife finding a list of all of the black players who he would have loved to have signed and played on his team. Now, that's not an indicator of what could have been, what if, shadow ball. You know, I I don't know what else is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One, like, uh, Perfect. Perfectly tied in. So the player I was looking for here was Bob Feller. Mm. How about Bob Feller coming out of high school for a second to <laughs> strike a bunch of dudes out? <laughs> Come Rapid back to- Robert. Yep, Rapid Robert. Yeah. Van Meter, Iowa. Fifteen Struck out 15 in his debut. He threw a no-hitter. I think he threw a no-hitter on opening day one year, and he also threw a no-hitter on Mother's Day when his mother was in the stands. Um. And Aww. they had a, they had an awesome. Oh, I know, and Barbara's not here. Damn. Um, Damn it, Patrick. <laughs> what, one of the really good stories, and I I I never knew who it was attributed to, but you know, um, was talking about how the first pitch was a strike, second pitch comes in was a strike, and then after the third uh, strike was called, the hitter turns back to the umpire and says, "I thought that last one sounded a little low." <laughs> that's 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 so funny. It sounded a little low, blue. Just because he couldn't I see will, it, he threw so I fast. Loved it. My, I will my, say, I had to, I had to explain that one to Katie. She oh was, yeah, she was pretty good on most of this stuff, but she was like, "It seems I logical." Laughing. It she, seems logical. Yeah, You're like, "Wait, I don't I'm, know how I'm, that I'm, doesn't." Like, it makes sense, but at the same time, it right. also doesn't. No, it sounded low. <laughs> what do you? <laughs> what do you mean? Um, my I couldn't, one see of, it. Was, couldn't see one it. One of my favorite, <laughs> like Cooperstown memories is I think I was probably there at, at 15 years old and um, probably, probably first day in, in town. And, you know, my dad and I went around to, you know, get a couple autographs each time that we were there. And we would get all the little flyers and say, all right, let's, let's get this guy, you know, this year. And, you know, we'd make a list of, of who we wanted to get. And we knew who were some of the older players too. Or um, And Bob Feller was one of those guys. So we we go to this uh you know, baseball card shop and, and memorabilia uh, shop um, on the edge of town. And the edge of town, granted, is it's like two blocks long, but it's it's on the far end of, of the two blocks. And I go in and, and Bob Feller's there and, and he's wearing a suit coat. And it's it's just before the time that he's he's done signing and there wasn't anybody around. And we said, OK, let's get Bob Feller and got his autograph, got to shake his hand and just, oh, man, that was so cool. And as we were, you know, continued to just hang around a little bit and look at the shop, it was Feller's time. He was all done. So he closed up an old school suit uh, uh, briefcase, closed it up, latched it up, and then he exited the store. And I was like, no way. 
So I followed him out just to watch him walk down the street, you know, in the, in the middle of summer. It was later in the day, so the streets weren't entirely bustling. And there was Bob Feller in basically a, a suit and tie carrying a, a briefcase just walking down the street in Cooperstown. And it just always stuck with me as just this amazing moment where we're, we're standing in front of this legend and icon. And then a minute later, he's just, you know, someone's grandfather. He's just himself. He's just living his life, walking, going to his, his hotel room or, or wherever his next destination was. And I always thought that was just one of the most beautiful and poetic baseball moments I've, I've ever encountered in my life. Wow. Yeah. And then he turned and looked at you and winked and said, tell my yeah. wife, Alicia, I'm going to be late. <laughs> no, <I'm... laughs> Wait a minute. You were there? Um... <laughs> I hope. I hope that happened. <laughs> oh. uh, in an incredibly artful transition, there is only one place that you can get a true Colorado mountain pie. <laughs> yeah. Something something Bob Feller's got to try. It's, I don't know if he ever got a chance. <laughs> but, um, you know, offer. Hey, you know what? You know what's super cool about what Bojo's is doing right now? They are offering 30% off takeout. When you ask for it, wow! They're they're a great business to support. Uh, like everyone, you know, they can use a little help in these times. But we all got to eat. Uh, why not have the best pizza in the world? There are six locations around Colorado. This offer is good at all of them. Make sure to tag them on Twitter and tag us if you go and pick some up. Take a picture of yourself getting that Bojo's. Uh, it's delicious. You're gonna love it. Uh, the to-go orders, again, available at all the locations. Uh, you can also get some DoorDash or Drizzly to deliver it to you. Uh, whatever you do, though, you're going to enjoy the pizza you get from Bojo's. You can get gluten-free or cheeseless pizza. They'll still make it to your exact specifications because uh, they care about you and they care about making sure that you get the best pizza experience you can. I get the best pizza that I mean, it's it's just for me, uh, tops in the world. I've said that before. I'll probably say it again. It's 30% off the takeout when you ask for it. Uh, if you feel like taking advantage of that, tip well. Please tip well. Everyone out there uh, is struggling. So if it's within your means to do so, um, head up our friends over at Bojo's. So mm, mouth is, is water in here and here thinking know, about right? Bojo's. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Just it, it really uh I would I wish I was a little bit closer. I'm <laughs> going to I'm actually gonna spend one of my I'm I'm really trying to follow governor's suggestions here. Mm -hmm. And you know, he's saying really try to if you're gonna go out, may, limit it to once, maybe twice a week. Uh, I'm going to spend one of them. We're going to do a little drive, a little a little bit of a, a drive down to the Bojo's nice. and get ourselves uh, some takeout. We're going to spend our, our one week, once a week treat on doing that. And, of course, picking up Breck Brew, uh, though we actually, we're probably good for a bit. We got a couple of 30 racks. <laughs> uh, did you get the 15-can sampler? That's the one. Yeah, I've got one of those. Yeah, I've yes. got the 15-can sampler. So today, yeah. What'd you had, what did you pair? What did you pair? What did you pair Shadow Ball with? I That's feel right. like Shadow I feel like there Ball. was something good that really worked with this one. 
Yeah, Shadow Ball, first of all, started with a lager, which I was drinking uh, right when the guy heartbreakingly said that, you know, (laughs) he felt like he was treated like a human in Mexico. Uh, Mm. But still, you know, I felt like drinking the lager for that moment was right. It felt right. Nailed it. Uh, And then the agave wheat is just was the next one in there, but it paired well. Um, it it made itself taste a little more old school. It it it's got an adaptable palate. You like that? Yeah, and, and that that works well when when again some of the Negro League players talking about how well they were treated down in Mexico. That's right. That's perfect. That's the right. agave. Oh, you nailed this one, Drew. Damn, yeah. you nailed this was, one. You paired yeah. it very well. You know, I do what I can. These things are very important to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one more player before we get uh, back into the sort of headliners of the episode, and that is High Pockets. Carl Hubbard and his screwball uh, and his weird arm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Very weird. Yeah, one of those uh, just sort of random legends in the game that I feel like, again, we, we could all stand for a documentary or a movie just about this guy. Um, the thing that I really liked about his segment was actually something that one of the writers said. Mm. And George, nope, I, I don't. George yep. Plimpton. You, it might have been, but I, I think it was the I think it was a different guy, though. I, I've been, I enjoy George Plimpton's accent as well. Um, there's something very tasteful about the way he speaks. Very it's it's all, he's the only juicy. one who has that accent. He's it's literally right. like the Plimptonian. I did a search on him, and one of the th- searches came up was something about his accent, and it's like, why okay. does he talk like that? Yeah, it's a Plimptonian <laughs> accent. He talked about how he was a kid, and because Carl Hubble threw a screwball, which is the opposite of a curve, right? A curve is is somewhat natural, right? Turning it if you're mm. right-handed, it's going clockwise. Mm. Um, but you're going the opposite way and how he used to like walk around like that, trying to be like his hero, Carl Hubble. And you know, his mom's like, what, what are you, why are you walking like that? Like, dear, you're being ridiculous. It's like how Billy Crystal used to run around the bases with a limp because Mickey Mantle, you know, right. uh, used to do it. So why not? Right. When I, when I, when yeah. the, uh, Carl Hubble five, you know, strikeouts of hall of famers, Ruth Garrick, Fox Simmons and Cronin, it immediately made me think about Pedro Martinez in the 99 All-Star game, which I think is featured in the 10th inning, um, where that that just ridiculous 99 season he had, and he started the All-Star game in Boston, um, for Boston, and he struck out the first four batters in the National League. Um, we, can, we can now say two of them are Hall of Famers, so you know who one of them is. And the other two, say what you will about them not being in the Hall of Fame, they are two of the best players of their era, period. Fine. They're not in the hall. Okay, fine. We'll have the discussion another day. Should they be in the hall? Doesn't matter. Were they two of the finest players of their era? Undoubtedly. To start the 99 All-Star game, much like Carl Hubble struck out five Hall of Famers, Pedro struck out Barry Larkin, Hall of Famer Larry Walker, Sammy Sosa, right. and Mark McGuire. First yeah. four of the game. That's insane. That is insane. That's that is quite the host of hitters <laughs> yeah. to be knocking down. I like the line that one of the writers uh, said of him 
First, I'd like that he described all of the things that a pitcher does well, but then mentioned controlling themselves spiritually. Hmm. That like perked my eyes. I was like, oh, right. That is a thing that a pitcher needs to be able to do. And he was saying, you know, sure, Carl Hubble, sure, the screwball and, you know, but he didn't have an overpowering fastball. It wasn't, you know, a Walter Johnson situation. And mm-hmm. so what was this guy really doing to be so successful? And he, he mentioned controlling himself spiritually. And he said, if my life hung in the balance, I would have him pitch the game. Yeah. And I, I just thought that was such a beautiful sentiment. Uh, that that gets to the core of uh, an ongoing conversation in all of professional sports and certainly in baseball at the core of it right now is sort of analytics versus more traditional methods of what wins out in the end. Talent, smarts, some kind of X factor that we can't quite measure. And uh, this guy was saying, you know, I know that guy would be centered. And that really spoke to me uh, because some of these players, it can be difficult to get a feel for what they were really like because we can't watch them that closely. Some, there was no film at all. Now we're getting early film. That description made me feel like, oh, okay, I know how Carl Hubbard worked a a baseball game. Hubble, excuse me, Hubbard. Yeah, and (laughs) and probably a lot of that was, was aided by what he did uh, in the 33 World Series, where he only had two starts, but he managed, he pitched two games, but he managed to have two complete games for a total of 20 innings. Now, I'll, I'll admit, I, I don't know the, the details behind that, how hmm. you throw two complete games for 20 innings. So I'm not good each. Math, did you throw it? Yeah. Was it? It was a 12 inning complete game on top of it, but did not give up a single run that year against the uh, the Senators in the 33 World Series. So yeah, I mean, when, you, when you're pitching in big games like that, that's that's obviously going to uh, leave a, a lasting legacy. And again, going back to what we said about Grove getting 300 wins, um, you know, Hubble was not able to do that. 253, you know, doesn't have any, you know, uh, magnanimous records. Won, won two MVP awards. Again, impressive for for a pitcher to have done that. But he's not a name that jumps out immediately as an all time great. But again, compared to you know those of his of his era in in his his class. He was again. He was one of the best. And anyone, anyone from this documentary who says that and gives you the thumbs up, then you, yeah, you got the thumbs up in my book too. Absolutely. All right. One last thing before we dive deep into Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and Buck O'Neill. Did Ruth call a shot? Drew, you know I grew up. In New Jersey, and if, if you don't, you don't listen to this podcast enough because I realize <laughs> I mention it every, every damn week. I should week. listen to the pod. I've heard it's good. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've mentioned it too much lately. Um, from New Jersey, uh, grew up a Yankees fan, saw a lot of them get inducted into the Hall of Fame in the 90s. I know the history of the Yankees incredibly well. So when I say he did not call his shot, he didn't oh, call his shot. Don't do that to me. Oh, you Let, believe it? Come on. You believe it? Let me believe it. There, there's fact, I mean, and then there's what you what you want to. Yeah, of course, of course, he called the shot. But okay, between, no, that's all. I, no, between, no, wait, is okay. this just between you and me, Drew? Wait, yeah. If no one's listening, we're not recording this, are we? No, this, this, that was a bunch of crap. He was pointing okay. to the dugout. Yeah, 
he's pointing. Come on, come on. He may have said it in the dugout, like I'm going deep on this guy, but did he point and says, you know, boom, I'm going right in the deepest part of Wrigley. I got this. No, he didn't. He didn't, he didn't do that. I'm I'm sorry. There is Loch Ness quality picture out of evidence, <laughs> photographic. <laughs> He said years later, they got him on tape saying, I called my shot. They also, you also have the audience laughing on tape too. Yeah. He said that. <laughs> this guy, this. They're like, yeah, we know, we know you're going to keep going. Well, that, hey, that's how these things, you know, become myths. And that's how they become like believable in old wives tales because you sort of forget where someone's being sarcastic and you're like, no, no, he, he called the shot. He said it. And I've seen everyone, everyone knows. And you just, you never saw that upturned smirk and. You know, when you, when you have that still frame of him pointing into the dugout, question mark, um, it, it does appear mm-hmm. almost as if maybe he's pointing in center field, but there was actually a video that uh, ended up getting released. There, there was only one um, piece of film. When I always thought it was strange that in this um, film that was released, really, yeah, released was that like it started just before he kind of pointed and you kind of see him half point and then you see him run the bases and that was it. But in 1999, there was footage from some guy who had gone to his, it was his first game ever, and he was able to capture it from a different angle. And uh, ESPN ended up, you know, purchasing the film, and you know they they had a whole special around it in the year 2000, showing the entire video, and you could you could pretty clearly see he was pointing the dugout, telling the guys to you know some Zapruder film nonsense. <laughs> we got some. <laughs> yeah, there is a second pointer uh, on the first base coaching box. <laughs> this is why I don't watch Mythbusters. <laughs> Taking the fun out of everything. Don't but worry. Yeah, Myth- actually, Mythbusters, they don't tackle anything important like baseball. Don't worry. It's, yeah, yeah it's right. all science. Good. Ew, gross. It's good. Um, yeah, I know, right? Uh, I, so I totally lied because I said that that was the last thing we were going to talk about before getting into that. But there was one other name I just saw scrolling through my notes. We can't not talk about Hank Greenberg. And it's actually sort of the perfect transitional person. Mm. Um, because as Ken Burns and friends did, I think, a very, very eloquent job of highlighting uh, th- there's also been plenty of discrimination against Jewish Americans. And at this point, just a little bit less uh, than there was against black Americans. And though overseas, of course, that would start to become a much, much bigger issue. And there was maybe uh, the most powerful, quote, of the entire episode for me was Hank Greenberg when he said, uh, whenever I hit a home run, I'm hitting one against Hitler. Oh, that'll, <laughs> that perks your eyes up. Other guys are like, I'm padding my stats, trying to win the pennant. You know, I'm really out here for my team. My guys, I do it for my family. Like, okay, okay. We're getting up there in noble causes. Hank Greenberg, like that one's for Hitler. You're like, Oh, okay. You, you, okay. You win. Well, Drew, you're you're maybe the next thing that was possibly going to come out of your mouth uh, was going to be, man, it would be great if there was a documentary about this guy. Turns out there is. It's fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Very good. Okay. Yeah, so that's definitely yeah. one to check it out. The Life and Times of Hank Greenberg uh, was directed by Aviva Kempner, who was actually at 
last year's Saber Convention in San Diego, uh, where she released a, a new documentary uh, all about Mo Berg, who was an incredibly interesting guy. I've never read the, the Catcher Was a Spy, but it's a documentary about Mo Berg, who is just this genius of a man who also happened to be a, a decent catcher. And he would go with Babe Ruth and, and some other players over to Japan and other places to, to play some of these exhibition games. All the while, he was undercover getting you know state secrets for the U.S. government. And so it's a documentary all about that. And so it's the same director, director of Viva Kempner. Um, but yeah, Hank Greenberg was an interesting dude. My, my favorite fun fact about uh, two, actually two fun facts about Hank Greenberg is he's of course in two Hall of Fames, the Baseball Hall of Fame, as well as the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, naturally. But the one fact that a lot of baseball fans don't know, and I've, I've asked this around in our, our Sabre chapter, is the fact that Hank Greenberg actually invented the first baseman's mitt. So he was an outfielder for a majority of his career. Yeah, he was an outfielder predominantly. And then when he moved over to first base, he realized like, ah, it's hard to get the mitt flat to the ground in order to scoop balls up. So he kind of made this modified mitt where he, I I think I've even seen like photographs of it or video where like he he lopped off like the top half of, of a normal mitt. And then he got something that was more like a pancake on the end so he could get his mitt down low enough. And, uh, and eventually it was approved and uh, kind of brought about that specialized mitt. Because really, there's, there's three types of baseball mitts. There's a standard mitt, which can, you can make large or small. You have a catcher's mitt, and you have the first baseman's mitt, which was invented by Hank Greenberg. That's phenomenal. I did not hear that story. I, I did not know that. So that's fantastic. I'll have to check out that documentary as well. And I'm hoping that plugging it is going to do justice to the fact that we have to skim over him quickly here just a little bit. Um, because I do want to do justice to the rest of the conversation that we need to have here. But before I can do that, I have to let you know about something that has been saving my life during these times that might sound like exaggeration, <laughs> but I don't think that it is <laughs> Strava craft coffee um, is, has become a necessity for me. Well, coffee was already kind of <laughs> an important uh, part of my life. One might argue too important. And uh, you know, when I'm sitting around at home and I don't necessarily need to go get out the door, uh, I, I can drink instead of two maybe three cups of coffee, I find myself drinking four all of a sudden. And I've got to calm that down a little bit. But it's a good thing I'm drinking Strava because it replaces a lot of that harmful stuff that you're going to get with regular coffee with CBD. So while it's probably still too much coffee to be drinking, I don't get super wired. I don't get all of the jitters. I don't have a crash later on. I feel good. I feel awake. I feel ready to attack the day or, you know, play video games and watch old baseball, whatever it is that we're doing. <laughs> However um, you might attack your day. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> much more passively attacking these days. But uh, you can purchase online and get 20% off if you use the code DNVR20. And again, tag them, tag us, show off your Strava. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty fantastic product. I, I, I'm really not making it up when I say, uh, it's replaced any regular coffee, uh, that I would buy 
It's fantastic stuff. It the, the helps with all of those things. The beans themselves yeah. are actually really quality too. That's the other thing that, you know, besides just the in, infusion of, of the CBD, the beans are like really good. They're not like those kind that can be like gnarled up or pretty much if you get something that's like pre-ground up, if you get like a Maxwell house, you know, those are some of the gnarlier of the beans. Uh, it, they'll still kind of do the same thing, but they just, they get it out of the, the better pot. They, they, they sort coffee beans in different pots based on how like, you know, perfect they look, Strava gets the good ones. So it's not just the CBD. It's, it's really just the quality of the bean itself too. 100%. And you can get, you can get it in bean. If you've got a grinder yourself, you can get, you know, Keurig, they've, they've, all the ways you can do mm. coffee, they can get you hooked up, which is pretty great. Yeah. And one of the biggest things is it's proven to help decrease anxiety. So if you're stuck in that situation where like, maybe you haven't been drinking coffee during the situation, you've been home, but you haven't been drinking it and you're, you're worried how that's affecting you. You're feeling weird because you're like, not a part of my routine, but what am I getting all, you know, gassed up for if I'm not going out to do stuff? Uh, it's just going to make me anxious and wired sitting around the house drinking coffee. Uh, if you want to learn how to drink coffee to relax, this is a great way to do that. I, I promise you, you're going to be blown away by how much of a difference it can make. Use that promo code DNVR20. You'll get 20% off. So, Josh Gibson and Satchel Page could have been the greatest players of all time, and we just don't know. And we'll that's never, sad. We'll never know. We'll never know. There, you know, there's a commission that Major League Baseball, you know, put out in the uh, mid 2000s. That was when they were kind of almost doing a, a one last free for all on the Negro Leagues and saying, you know, they had been putting players in through special committees every few years, you know, here or there, because since a lot of these players didn't play in the majors or someone like Satchel Page, who, you know, pitched for only like six seasons, parts of six seasons, you know, he is, wasn't eligible for the, the typical baseball hall of fame. So they needed to have these veteran committees and they decided, well, let's really invest some money into trying to find as many of these records as possible scorecards ultimately by records I, I mean you know pulling up you know newspaper articles from from pittsburgh all over even even the barnstorming games see how many that you know could be retrieved to try to put together the numbers and you know unfortunately there there's you know not not a lot um i forget what the exact number is i wouldn't be surprised if it was you know closer to like 35 percent of, of probably all of the games that, that were played. But even still, when, when you look at those numbers, uh, it Satchel Page and Josh Gibson stand out above the rest as being, you know, the two most dominant by far players in, you know, in the Negro leagues and, and of that era. Yeah. Satchel Page, who was known to boast, <laughs> And he was quite uh, boastful. Extrapolate and he tell tall tales. Too. He would boviate. Yeah, yeah. He'd <laughs> excuse me. Um, he estimated his record to be about 2,500. <laughs> now, uh, as the documentary noted, that would be four times more wins 
than Cy Young's record. But considering the way they played and how often they played, and of course you could question the talent level, the story they end with, uh, with Buck O'Neill talking about him getting Josh Gibson suggests he could hang with anybody. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest he could, could he have racked up 2000 wins if he had to pitch against Ty Cobb and people probably not, but I mean, okay, cut him in half and then cut him in half again. He's so, still yeah. <laughs> great, right? <laughs> like, uh, and that seems like you, you and that feels like it would be an, an injustice of a cut in half, cut in half again. Like, no, 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 no. That's too. That's like the Coors Field thing, right? Like, well, let's just knock off 50, 60 points of batting average and eighty points of slugging from Larry Walker's numbers and look at them like that. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> there might be some inflation. On Satchel Page's 2,500 record. <laughs> yeah, they, they were come just... On. Yeah, come on. They forget about it. Uh, they forget about Like it. those little kids. That was that was one of my favorite parts, the kids talking about Babe Ruth signing with the Boston Braves. <laughs> and you just see these 10-year-old kids, and they sound just like grizzled New Yorkers. Like, I don't know, man. I hope my dad moves up to Boston. I'm going to go see Babe Ruth play every day. Okay, I got to go. Bye. Like just these great New York accents, You're like that's coming out of a child's larynx. It's 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 crazy. Uh, he's a great man. Yeah, he's, he's a, great a great man. man. He's got great character. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Who is this kid? All yes, right, well. Satchel Page. He made his big league debut. You know, because he he just wasn't ready before then. At forty two years <sighs> young. It- yeah, it, you know um, he needed a lot of seasoning. Apparently, he needed a lot of yeah. seasoning in the minors. Um, right. Then he he retired at forty six, but then he came back uh, twelve years later at the ripe young age of fifty eight years old. And do you know what he did for his one like? Hey, it's kind of a publicity stunt. Like Minnie Minoso is a guy that I'm sure he'll he'll get mentioned in um, one of the future episodes where he played. I think in five different decades, like I think he played it, you know, in his late fifties and in the year 1980, just to say that he played in the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. But do you know what he did in his one appearance at 58 years old, Drew? He threw three, at some point. three shutout it. innings at 58 against Beautiful. a major league team. Beautiful. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, uh, the guy, so, there, I don't know. I, I assume there are a couple of documentaries about Satchel Page. I know there are a ton of wonderful books because I've gotten my mother all of them for <laughs> Christmases over the years, uh, and and she's read them. And she'll come back and and talk to us more about all the fun stories. Uh, some of which were told, many of which were not. But. Uh, where was the uh, the the one I, I've always liked that he named his pitches and this go around my favorite one wasn't one of the you know when I was a kid I, I would like his like midnight rider like yeah let's yeah. go um I like trouble ball mm. that I was just like mm, he throwing him that trouble ball like I feel <laughs> like I feel like we got to bring that back like the next time a Rocky has got a super funky pitch 
something that just doesn't move quite like other stuff. We got to call it a trouble ball. That that's a great great name. I mean, outside of you know now probably close to fifteen years ago, Dice K Matsuzaka throwing a gyro ball, and Thomas Harding still throwing a pushy ball. Outside of those two names, we don't see any great nicknames for pitches. And I think trouble ball, we got that that needs to be brought back for someone. What a know. shout out for the pushy ball on the podcast. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've only heard about it. It's it's very Thomas Harding. Difficult. No. Thomas Harding <laughs> got John Gray to line up next to the dugout as a catcher. <laughs> what? So that Thomas Harding <laughs> could throw he said john i need to show you this pitch (laughs) and he threw him what thomas harding a professional writer and i might add an extraordinary one at that second calls a pushy ball (laughs) and john did it of course i mean of course he did yeah (laughs) thomas knew his audience there (laughs) <laughs> and that year, John Gray had the greatest season of his career. Some may say it True. was due to the pushy ball. Others have zero evidence whatsoever. I guess we'll never know. I'm going to say it's because he put on 50 pounds and kept it on and stopped freaking out every time he let a runner get on base. I'm going with that. Which one are we but talking push- about? Thomas the push- or, the pushy or ball. Gray? Yeah. Oh. He's going to kill me for that. <laughs> Thomas is going to come up with that one. I'm sure he's listening. Um, (laughs) So for me, I I don't know why this has always stood out. We'll get back to Satchel Page. I'm sure there will be a little bit more there. We said we were going to try to go under an hour. I don't know if we're going (laughs) to. We're we're really good at the brevity thing. Um, 900 home runs for Josh Gibson always felt like a somehow more legitimate number like that always seemed to me plausibly true especially when you look at pictures of the man mm-hmm. and 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 you hear the stories that people tell the favorite of course being a, of him hitting the home run one day in one city driving to another city the next to them throwing the ball out and saying you're out from the day before because the ball hadn't landed yet uh you're, you're you're out from yesterday. From yesterday, that's prime baseball storytelling stuff right there. Um, and and that's the kind of thing where you you look at it like the Satchel Page two thousand wins thing, where you're going, that probably didn't happen. Ruth Collin is shot. I don't know. That probably didn't happen, right? What What's more likely? He called his shot, or that Josh Gibson hit nine hundred home runs and Satchel Page won. We'll say a thousand games. Yeah, I know which one would be last. Again, we've. Yeah, I mean, you you seem to have like video evidence that <laughs> you know. I, I trust your like New York sources, like people in the know. People are like, hey, yo, I know a guy who knows a guy who said a thing about another thing, and he said it wasn't like that. Like, you got that whole situation covered. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't have that here. I don't, you know, but the. Knowing Satchel Page's, you know, embellishment, and but what was the no? What was the word you said before? What was the word you made up? Um, I, I think, John, I can believe that Josh Gibson 
coulda, shoulda, woulda, did hit 900 home runs and and maybe would have hit 800 if they were playing integrated baseball back then. When when I look back on it, and I'm sure my mother, if she was here, would say, don't you dare say this. Um, I, I do think Josh Gibson might be the the worst omission of all the terrible, not, not that you should really be ranking them really, but that let me, let me state it this way, that if the game were integrated as it should have been at the time, that Josh Gibson might've gotten a lot of the fame and glory that was hoisted upon Babe Ruth, that he might've been one of the most famous people in the world, uh, certainly his accolades, his prowess, uh, suggest to me that, that I think that that could have been true. And it's very flattering that, you know, of course, a lot of players, you know, might've been called, Oh, the, the black tie Cobb or the, you know, black Babe Ruth as Josh Gibson was. But the fact that it existed in a world where people would say, actually, Babe Ruth is more like the white Josh Gibson. And that was like, kept Even around. Then, yeah. yeah. That's like saying something of like, Oh wow! All right, Josh Gibson was was legit. Like that was no no one took that in a bad way. That actually was a compliment. You know, what what's really sad is that you know I don't I don't know what health issues really, um, you know, uh, impacted Gibson, but he he died uh, young man. You know, he only died at thirty five, but maybe most tragically of all is that when he died at, at thirty five years old in uh, January of nineteen forty seven was that he was not alive long enough to see Jackie Robinson actually suit up for the Brooklyn Dodgers later that year. That's brutal. Just by, just by a few months, an endless series of what ifs, my friend. Mm. Of course, we don't want to skim over characters like James Cool Papa Bell, who scored from first on a sack bunt, who could flip off the switch and be in bed before the lights were out. I think he was also, I think the other, other one uh, about him was um, he hit a line drive up the middle and he almost knocked himself out sliding into second base. Love it. Like he's so fast. The the batted ball he just hit, he's zooming around and it's like, oh, the ball that I just hit almost hit me as I slide in the second. Uh, (laughs) As if I need to explain that one any further, but I I think that one's cool too. That's the second time we've explained a joke on this podcast. Well, actually, so so I'll explain something, and and, and now now people are really going to hate me. It's one thing for the Babe Ruth thing, but now I'm really going to take the piss out of it. So the whole thing with him turning the light out or getting in bed before the light went out was was dealt with science, and I'm not a big science guy, but uh, as far as I know the story is, the way the light bulbs operate is that when you turn a switch off, it took a second for the, for, you know, light to, to dissipate, you know, like the coil would still be hot. So you turn a light off and it would basically like dim down, you know, slowly or, or somewhat quickly. Maybe it took seconds. I don't know. So quite literally he would turn a light off, get into bed and put the covers up and the light bulb still had a shard of light left. So there is some factual evidence to that one. So it's so. it's a little less impressive by today's standards is also what you're saying. Yeah, so what I'm saying is I'm ruining two things in this uh, episode. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely terrible. You're, you're a bad person and you should feel bad. Um, <laughs> I really liked when uh, Satchel Paige said, 
Uh, any place in the whole country where there's a baseball diamond, they know me. Mm. I, I thought that really spoke to how, well, you know, again, deservedly, Jackie Robinson gets a ton of credit for breaking the color barrier. It's these guys who really made it possible. And, and maybe, as they, they talked about in the episode, Satchel Page more than anybody else because he was the draw. And not that that's the only thing that matters, but to owners that, and this, you know, also against the backdrop of uh, depression and economic downturn and nobody coming out to baseball games. And they talked about people only in the only meal of the day would be a five cent hot dog and like re- really rough yeah. times that, that people would pay money to come out to see, Satchel Page, and in fact, Buck O'Neill, again, drawing those comparisons to Babe Ruth, we, we talked about how he kind of saved baseball coming back from the Black Sox scandal, um, that Satchel Page put black baseball, the Negro Leagues, and all of that into the American consciousness and basically proved, along with other people, Josh Gibson as well, but for the masses, for the people that pay for, as we talked about in the last episode, for Hulk Hogan, and Babe Ruth and and the guy, it, Josh Gibson wasn't that character. He may, he may have been the better ball player, all things considered, but Satchel Page was everything. He was talking trash on the mound. He was telling stories. He was sleeping with everybody. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, hopefully he was manscaped. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he, more than anybody planted the seed in the minds of people who otherwise would have thought it foreign or strange that paying money to go see a black man pay baseball might be the best thing that you can do. You you kind of took the words almost literally out of my mouth. I was going to say he sowed the seeds because mm. at that time, the team that was the most furthest west was St. Louis. There were no teams west of the Mississippi. You had the St. Louis Browns and the St. Louis Cardinals. So when Satchel Page says, hey, if you go to any baseball diamond, they're going to know who I am. Well, you know, if you if you were from Colorado, to, to, to use our, our home state as an example, you might not have known about certain stars in certain cities. Um, you know, games on the radio only just started getting broadcast, I, I think, in 1935. Um, which, which, you know, again, was, was broached in this, uh, this chapter and, but because baseball wasn't everywhere in America at the time, Satchel Paige was one of those guys who barnstormed and they went all around the country playing the best team in all of these little leagues that have been talked about in the previous innings, you know, with all these funny quirky names all across the continental United States. So Satchel Paige was a guy that, like you said, people would go out to see he would put on a show for them, but he would also just have such incredible uh, abilities and, and such craft that people would say, wow, that, that Satchel Page, he's one of the best ball players in the world. And they might not have known about, you know, Dizzy Dean quite as much or Frankie Frisch, the Fordham Flash, or, or any of the players from the Gas House Gang and the St. Louis Cardinals. But they knew about Satchel Page because he played everywhere and he planted the seed and he sowed the seed all across baseball long before 
the Dodgers and the Giants finally made their way out to California in 1958. Satchel Paige helped kind of lay some of that groundwork for Major League Baseball to expand like that. Yeah, so in in more ways than one, mm-hmm. he helped Major League Baseball expand, and and maybe as much as anybody in the history of the game. And and I hope he's remembered that way. Uh, uh, I, I hope there's more ways to bring light. I feel like there there needs to be more of that. Like I said, I know there are a lot of books. I'm sure there's some documentaries. Um, we need a, a Netflix series that catches the attention of, I don't know what we need, <laughs> you know, one of those, something that really gets people uh, to know this guy and, and the impact that he had. I, I think that would be really, really good. There's still unexplored potential there, even with everything that's been done, uh, maybe a coalescing of the books that have been written on Satchel Page into a mini series of, of episodes or yeah, something. I think there's definitely a market for that, like fictional history. Like there's there's a lot of authors out there that are really successful at that. So yeah, if you if you had you know a TV series that took place in the you know it, it could be all throughout you know the 20s and 30s, but uh, maybe it begins in the early to mid 40s before you know Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. And yeah, it's predominantly about baseball, but it's also you know about race in America during the, that time and the civil rights movement. Like you could tie all of that in together and it doesn't, doesn't have to be fictional uh, history, but um, you know, it, it can definitely pull a lot from, from history. And there's, there's not too many people around that still remember, you know, those times. Cause you know, 1947 is, is, you know, 70 plus years ago. So I found it interesting at, as we were watching it, uh, listening to some of the Negro league players share their stories, which was just fantastic. The one gentleman in there, um, Double Duty Ratcliffe, uh, he he wore the hat and he was all by himself. When he filmed this, when he filmed baseball, he had to have been in his nineties because uh, he eventually passed away, circa two thousand four, and he lived to be one hundred three years old. Wow, that is unbelievable. Yeah, hundred and three. Yeah, it, it was pretty amazing to get to hear from some of the people mm-hmm. who were directly involved you know that we hadn't really gotten that before obviously <laughs> you know that'd be quite a feat for for some of these for christy matthewson or babe ruth or any of those guys to still be around um but yeah we we got some of that in this the people who were there firsthand accounts and of course that comes with some firsthand uh <laughs> storytelling uh embellishments but there there was it, a really it, good it piece great, it was. There was a really good piece. It must have been on HBO Sports a few years ago. That's worth checking out. And it was about this this kid. I don't know where he's from. Somewhere, I'm going to say like in the heartland of the U.S., maybe Ohio, something like that. This this, this white kid. And he was, he was a, a high schooler at first, and now he's maybe in his early 20s. And he decided he just did a little project, and he wanted to create a database of Negro League players, particularly ones who were still alive. And he kept finding all these guys and then like, you know, I probably partially through Facebook, but like linked them all up and they have like, you know, these reunions. So the Negro Leagues ended in 1948. So if if you got in at the tail end as like, let's say an 18 year old um, in 1948, that means you were, you know, born in 1950. So it's 2029, you'd be 90 years old. So there are literally just a handful of players 
um, left from the Negro Leagues who, who played there. Um, so it, that was just that was just an interesting piece that you know these two worlds that you would think would almost have nothing in common, how they are inextricably linked and how all of these Negro League guys, they, they love this kid. They, they, they think of him as like their grandson because of what he's helped, you know, do for them and, and tried to, you know, raise money for them as well. Cause obviously these players didn't earn a lot of money. Um, you know, they're, they're not, I don't, I don't think major league baseball helps out, you know, Negro league players, um, you know, they're not a part of the, the players association. They're not a part of the union. They, they don't get pension or anything like that. So, um, it's pretty sad, but, but that's one of those, again, one of those things that we got to look out for on YouTube and, and, and I, it, it's a, a video I, I recommend checking out. It's got to be out there somewhere. Yeah. If we can find that, we'll retweet it and, you know, link to anyone who's looking for it. So let us know. I wanted to mention one more thing, and if you've got final thoughts, I'd be more than happy to hear them. But I saw you uh, send out this quote as well, and I thought it was a a great summation of mm-hmm. the episode. And it comes from your guy, John Thorne, mm-hmm. uh, who said that the lie of baseball is that it's an even playing field. And there, there was a lot. That was sort of the beginning of the quote. He went on to mm-hmm. say a few more things. The one, actually, the second part that stuck out to me was different than the one that you tweeted out, I think. But he said, uh, class and race issues that mirror American life play out on the ball field. And in many ways, that's still true. In fact, you might say, well, race issues, certainly far less so. And it is less so. Uh, that's the case. But Remember, it wasn't even that long ago that Yuli Gurriel and and that whole situation with mm-hmm. Yu Darvish and uh, you know it's there's a whole question about you know the kind of terminology that's used when Latin ball players are are overly celebratory uh, or mm-hmm. you know it's certainly not completely gone. I, I do believe we've made a, a great deal of progress, obviously, uh, from from back then when black players weren't even allowed to play. So yes, but um, in many ways, that's still true. And, and maybe more than anything, the class issues that still play out. Uh, you don't get to have a, a book and a, a movie and a conversation like Moneyball without there being a real conversation about the economics of baseball um, class. Uh, a lot has been written. Uh, I know Jimmy Rollins has done a fantastic uh sort of research project around the way baseball has begun to disappear from the inner cities because it's so expensive that basically if you want to get drafted and and you want to get into the minor league baseball system and and you really want to catch the eye of a major league uh, scout, well, then you better be able to play on traveling teams from the time you're 11 years old and you better have all of your own equipment. So you better come from a certain class status where, you know, in basketball, like you got a ball, you got a, rim you gotta my my dad used to shoot at a colored shingle on the roof like (laughs) and you know some concrete and practice some basketball like baseball needs to do a better job um even the economics of it you know at Coors Field we've got four dollar seats you can get into the rock pile and that's super dope but overall the experience of taking a family of four and getting anything resembling decent seats to a baseball game you're talking about a several hundred dollar experience um 
there's there's still a lot of class and racist, as John Thorne said, class and race issues that mirror American life playing out on the ball field. Yeah, that you know, baseball has a, a great program that I, I think still has you know a long way to go till it reaches its impact. I, I still don't know if we've seen the impact as it's I guess still on the newer side in the grand scheme of things, but it's called RBI reviving baseball in inner cities. And it's, it's done. So not, not particularly targeting, um, you know, black cities or, or Mexican American cities, anything like that. Just if we look at, you know, the, the, the economics of the game and how it is expensive, like you said, Drew about, about Jimmy Rollins and, you know, to, to buy a brand new bat. And you know, I, I even talked about on, on minor league Monday a little bit about how, you know, how you have to suffer a lot in the sport of baseball before you can finally start making money. Uh, Austin Hayes, just this morning, I heard on MLB Network Radio, uh, an outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles actually just beat Garrett Hampson as being the, the first player from the 2016 draft to make it in the majors in the 2018 season. And, and he was saying how he, he knew some of his friends who had been in the minor leagues for about, you know, four years and they've, they've lost money overall. By how much it costs because they're only getting paid like four hundred dollars you know a week and you know what, what it what it costs for to have proper nutrition and things of that nature and these are these are the guys who have already spent thousands of dollars on the travel teams and the equipment and the coaching and the lodging and all of those things so those guys are having a hard time with the financials so you can't imagine what it's like you know having a couple kids on you know a minimum wage salary or or even if if you have a a decent job but you know somebody needs to to stay home to take care of the little ones you you don't have as much time to think about you know thriving as a person or your your family as thriving you're thinking more about surviving and there's a lot of families uh, all over the world of course but if we're talking about baseball in America that right now particularly right now but even before all of this uh, coronavirus business, so many families are just trying to survive. If you live in and around a major city, um, that you can't think about thriving and and getting your your kid to play t-ball at six years old, so that they can make their proper advancements. You know, it's just sorry you 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 never played baseball before you were ten years old, so it, it's probably just not going to happen. Or if you do pick up a a bat and ball at 10 years old, you're going to be so far behind the other kids that you're not going to enjoy the game as much. And you're just going to go, ah, I guess I was just a, never a ball player when really you just never got the chance. You just never got the opportunity to. And that's, that's kind of the button to put on, on this episode of shadow ball is what if, and what if they had been given that opportunity to play? What if? And if, if there was a lesson of this, right, whether it's finding dizzy Dean out, picking cotton or all these guys who could have been playing. It's that baseball should be for everyone. Amen. Yep. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for listening and thanks for watching along. Remember Tuesdays and Thursdays at five. I forgot. So please you remember because <laughs> I made an oopsies on the Twitter. Uh, we're doing games Monday, Wednesday, and soon Friday, though, we're, we're taking this Friday off as we collect ourselves. So but be ready. Yeah, you, we're going to give yes. you Friday off, but that's because, do we want to tell them the, the, the news starting next week? 
Let's do. It's we've we've yes. we've got it down. We'll be releasing the the full official graphic and schedule lately. But you, I, I feel like you should tell them. You've you've done the work on this, the legwork on it. You unveil it here. Well, MLB.com has has unlocked the entire 2018-2019 season. So our next big DNVR watches as as a Rockies and baseball community is going to be the 2018 season for the Colorado Rockies, their second consecutive postseason appearance uh, after doing so in 2017. But in 2018, of course, we know they they go on to to win the wild card. And we've got 21, 21 of the best games. And there were still some we had to cut off. That was like, oh, that's a Oh, it's a shame. They won Garrett Hampson's debut and he had a double. And what about this one? No, no, that one's. So we picked 21 of the finest games and they are all fantastic. I'm, I'm so excited to go back and watch all of these. And it's going to start with an exciting walk off on opening weekend of the 2018 season. We're going to get it started next Monday for Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And it's going to be fantastic for the next seven weeks we can get through this together. Absolutely. So make sure you're subscribed to everything so you don't miss out. Uh, you're subscribed to the DNVR.com. You're subscribed to the podcast and, and all the other podcast feeds. You're following on Twitter, social media, all that good stuff. And uh, you're using that hashtag DNVR watches and, and watching all this old stuff along with us. And, um, hopefully enjoying these podcasts. If you've got any extra thoughts on stuff that we've missed out, make sure to leave a comment on the podcast. That's the best way to make sure that we don't miss it. I hope you all continue to be safe, stay home, be awesome. We will continue to be at home and be Patrick Lyons and Drew Creaseman. And until next time, until sometime, we will see you at the ballpark. <laughs>